we want to commit our way to the Lord, and we want to hear from Him. And so we're going to Matthew 6, uh, and we're going to begin in verse 5. And so if you're physically able, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Again, this is Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 5 through 15 this morning, but I am going to begin by just reading through verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would come and you would reveal your word to us, that you would open our hearts to receive the truth of your word and that you would help us to see your heart and that we would become more of a praying church, more of a, a prayerful people and that you would help us to pray with right motives. You would teach us this morning to pray and how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you were to list your top obstacles to a faithful prayer life, what would they be? You just consider in your own life, what keeps you from being faithful in prayer? So I was thinking about this, I was thinking about different conversations that I've had with different people across years and just what's true in my own life. It, could it be that it just feels too hard? It just, you go to prayer and it just feels like, man, it just feels like I am walking against the tide. It is just hard. Or maybe you feel like you don't have enough time or enough discipline that, that you just can't ever seem to find the time or carve out the time or you feel guilty around it because you know you should be carving out the time, but you just don't and you make time for a lot of other things. Maybe you feel like prayer doesn't work, right? Prayer is an act of faith and we don't see immediate results. It doesn't feel as productive as something that seems more practical in nature. And maybe you wouldn't explicitly say that, but maybe that's the reason why we don't pray more is because it just doesn't feel as immediately practical as the other tasks that are pressing in on our day. Maybe you feel like you don't know how. You don't know how to pray. And so you go to prayer and you feel like you don't have the words or you're around other people and it seems like prayer just flows for them and you just feel like when you sit down to pray like a mute. I read from Paul Miller this week that what we need in prayer more than discipline is to sense our poverty of spirit, our neediness. That I would say one of our greatest obstacles to prayer is our unbelief or a belief that we can get along well enough without prayer. 
In James chapter 4, the earthly brother of the Lord Jesus writes this, we do not have because we do not ask. We ask and do not receive because we ask with wrong motives so that we can spend the answer to our prayers on our own sinful desires. And in our text today from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is dealing more with the latter than the former. He's not as much admonishing us to pray. So James is saying, look, one of the big problems that you have, church, is that you're not seeing God answer prayers because you're not praying. You're not asking him. And so we spend more time complaining about the circumstances of our life or worrying about them than we do actually bringing them to God. But then James says that we ask, we are praying, but we don't receive because our motives are wrong. And that is what Jesus is addressing most in this text. And you can see it in verse 5 and in verse 6 and in verse 7. In each case, Jesus says, when you pray, when you pray. So he's not saying if you pray. He's not saying you should pray. But as you are already praying, here is what I am commanding you to do. And so if you were to break down this text, you would see Jesus teaching us in verses 5 through 6 why we should pray. And then in verse 7 through 8, how we should pray. And then verse 9 through 13, what we should pray. And so he's not saying when, like you should do this. He's saying as you do this, here's why and how you should. And so we're going to take those in turn. I'm going to deal with the first, the why and the how in the premise of prayer. That's where we're starting. Um, So if you're going to If you're a note taker and you have kind of like three headers for our time together, we're going to look at premise, prayer, promise, okay? And most of our time is going to be spent on premise. And so if you are one of those people that has like an internal clock and you're like, oh my word, he's spending way too long on point number one. And if they're all this long, we are actually fasting today from lunch, not voluntarily, then um, chill out. Um, We're going to spend more time at the front end of this message, and then um, we are going to continue on to prayer's content and God's promise for us as we pray. So first, prayer's premise. We've got three different conspicuous items as Jesus is teaching us why to pray and how to pray. And the first is that prayer is for the Father. It's for the Father meaning it's not for others and not mainly for yourself. And David gave us a wonderful sermon last week from verses 1 to 4 on the call to practice righteousness for the eyes of God alone. David talked much and highlighted very meaningfully that we're not to engage in righteous deeds to please others and not even to please ourselves because it makes us feel like a a certain kind of person or makes us feel a certain kind of way when we pray. But we're to practice righteousness for God alone because God is worthy. And so if you look at chapter 6, verse 1, you'll see that this is kind of a thesis statement over the rest of chapter 6. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
And what follows that verse are three explicit ways of practicing righteousness that he gives us. And in each case, Jesus gives us a negative command to tell us how not to engage in these righteous practices. And then he tells us how to do them in a way that honors God. And so our text today in verses 5 through 15 is really Jesus applying this thesis verse, this verse 1 of beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. He's applying that verse to the righteous act of prayer. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, at the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, Jesus calls us to prayer as an act of righteousness. So that's built into this text that you need to see this about prayer. It is righteous, meaning it is Christ-like and God-honoring to be in the regular practice of prayer. And the first premise of prayer that the Lord gives us, the first negative command that he gives around prayer is that it must not be used for self-righteous advancement. He's saying don't use prayer pridefully in order to receive the praise of other people, in order to get other people to think of you as spiritual. So he says this in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that, what they may, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus does this with regard to each of the practices of righteousness in this chapter. You see it in verse 2 and in verse 5 and in verse 16. He's telling them, don't do these things, don't give, don't pray, don't fast in order to be seen by others. Don't do it like the hypocrites. And in each case, he says, they need to be happy with the reward that they have because that is all that they're getting. There will be no reward from your heavenly father if the motive for your praying is for others to see you as you pray, to be perceived by others as spiritual. And he refers in each case to hypocrites. Now, it's pretty well versed that hypocrites means an actor, that actors in that day would be called hypocrites. And it was because they would wear different masks and they would act as different characters based on the masks that they were wearing. So really a, a hypocrite in each of these practices of righteousness is somebody who's pretending at these things. A hypocrite, when it comes to prayer, is somebody who's pretending to pray. And so the reason why Jesus calls us to beware of practicing our righteousness before people is that in our sinful nature, we are not immune from loving the approval and the praise of people. That it feels good to the sin-tainted ego to have others think highly of you or for them to like you and to respect you. And this seeking of approval from other people may look differently from you. I I heard David uh, last week say he doesn't really care as much about what people think, but he he has to be on guard for practicing righteousness for his own approval. But at the bottom of all of us, there is some level of wanting people to think that we're smart, wanting people to think that we're funny, wanting people to think that we're spiritual in some kind of way. And 
I was thinking about what, what's like a very common everyday example of this so that we can then take that everyday example and apply this spiritually. And I, I wonder if you um, know what it's like to have given this, but I think everybody knows what it's like to have been on the receiving end of some biting comment, some sarcastic comment from someone as they used you to elevate themselves for the laughter of other people. So you were the butt of some joke and you laughed along with everybody uh, graciously or because you didn't want to seem like you got your feelings hurt, but it, it cut a little bit and they used you in order to receive praise or laughter or appreciation from other people. And that is really what using prayer for the praise of people is like. It is, it is using something that God has given us for the praise and the worship of God and, and using it, using God to receive praise or appreciation from other people. So using prayer as a means of getting others approval is like using God as the butt of a joke for a laugh. That's why it's so serious. It, it, it is like you're putting God down in order to receive laughter or praise or approval from people. And Jesus says in each of these instances of people doing what he commands self-righteously, not for him, but for the sake of others, in each of those cases, they've received their reward. And we'll see this more later, but that is an astonishingly, astonishingly costly trade. So prayer is not a platform before man. It is a doorway to God. Prayer is not designed for a stage. It's designed for secrecy. It's not for standing hypocritically, but for kneeling in humility. And this call to praying in secret, to secret righteousness, has less to do with privacy than it has to do with the protection of your motives. So prayer is for God, but our sinful hearts drift towards making it about us, about receiving the praise of men, or maybe for you, it's, you're not as much in danger of praying to try to receive praise from people, but you are in danger of abstaining from prayer because you don't want to be seen as foolish around people or you don't want to be seen as using the wrong words. So you're still thinking horizontally as you're praying or not praying. Who doesn't know that? When, when you're a new believer, or you're starting out in prayer, you're new to praying around other Christians and you come to a prayer meeting and you're terrified because you're mainly self-conscious thinking about other people rather than prayer being mainly for God. And so Jesus commands us to go to the Father in secret, not with a view towards superstitious secrecy. We're going to see this when we get to giving. I think sometimes people think, I got to give in secret. I can't let, know what my left hand knows what my right hand is doing. And if other people find out about this gift, I'm going to lose my reward. But it's not about superstitious secret giving. It's to protect your motives. And if your motive is not for people to find out so that they might praise you, you're not in danger from somebody finding out that you gave some gift and the Lord using your example to further kingdom generosity. And so his point is don't pray for others' notice, pray for God's pleasure alone. So first prayer, the first premise of prayer is that prayer is for the Father. It's not for you and it's not for others and their notice. 
But prayer is also with the Father. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, it is interesting. We, you guys know that we document all the time that so many yous in the Bible are plural because we're driving at God has called us to life together. He's called us to care for one another, to love one another. And so, so many, so much of the times when Paul is writing in his letters and he says you, he's actually saying y'all. And we've said for a long time, there needs to be like a Southern translation of the Bible so that all the y'alls get translated properly. And we have this, or we can have a, a Northern you guys's right? But there needs to be this differentiation so that you know he's writing to an audience versus writing singularly. So in this text, all of the yous that you see in your Bible that are applications of what Jesus is teaching are singular because he is illustrating, even with the precision of his language, that he wants you to be alone in secret for his eyes and not for the eyes of of men. So, for example, in verse 5, the yous are plural, saying, when you all pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you all, they have received their reward. But when you, singular, pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you singular. He's looking right at you. He wants to isolate you. He wants to get you alone in prayer. And don't miss that last line of verse 6. Who is in secret? Your father is in secret. Prayer is such an act of faith, is it not? You can't see God. When you go to an isolated place alone, but away from the busyness of your life, away from the distraction of your phone, away from the pressing tasks of the day in the silence of solitude with an open Bible, God is there. He is everywhere, but he reveals himself to the seeking heart and his call this morning to us is to seek him in prayer, to get alone with him, to carve out time, to get in secret by yourself to seek him in prayer. See, prayer is not first about seeing God act or getting something from God. Prayer is first and foremost about communing with God as your father because to all who have received Jesus, he's given them the right to become children of God. And so prayer is communion. Jesus, who never sinned, who defended, depended on his heavenly father perfectly, one of the most conspicuous things about his life as a sinless human being was that he would withdraw to a desolate place to pray. You can see this over and over again throughout the Gospels that Jesus would withdraw to a desolate place. It means wilderness place. He would go to get alone with God before he called his disciples as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Over and over again, you can see him withdrawing, withdrawing, withdrawing to just him and his heavenly Father so that he might seek him, 
so that he might depend on him, so that he might be with him. As we talk about prayer being with your heavenly father, I just had this image for some of you based on maybe your experiences with your heavenly father or with, I mean, with your earthly father or with your earthly families. You're thinking, this isn't, this isn't helpful. Actually, prayer already kind of feels like family gatherings to me. Like it's something that you have to suffer through with the strange people that you don't feel that close to and you say the things that you're supposed to say so that you can just go ahead and get it over with and you'd rather be somewhere else. Does that kind of sound somewhat like your family gatherings or like prayer? But prayer is a banquet. The feast of God's word spread up out for your worship and for your joy. God himself, your father, inviting you to dine with him, to worship him and for him to be enough as you leave everything else to go to him. I think this is being with him. And when I say with him in secret, that in secret, meaning that desolate place, this is one of our greatest needs as a church, but I think one of, one of the most endangered aspects of prayer in our society today, in our information age, in our distracted life, in our busyness, to actually get alone in secret with God, to seek his face, to carve out time in your day to get alone, distraction-free with your heavenly Father, to be with him. So prayer is for your heavenly Father, it is with your heavenly Father, and it is to the Father. Look at verse 6 and 7 and 8. He says, pray to your Father who is in secret. And then he says in verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here you see that prayer is not a performance. We saw earlier these initial verses talk about not performing for people. But here Jesus is warning us not to try to perform for him. He says don't be like the Gentiles who just chant and they cry out. And they're, you, you can picture uh, the priests of Baal crying out a, around when they're in that competition with Elijah. And they're calling out all day just chanting and uttering nonsense to a God who's not there. And Jesus is saying, don't be like them. Don't be like those who worship the gods of the nations who cannot hear them. You are worshiping and coming to a heavenly father who knows what you need before there's ever a word on your mouth. You need to come to him as your father, not heaping up empty phrases. So it's important to know that he's saying, don't, don't pray with vain repetition. He's not saying don't pray with repetition because you see in the Psalms, there's a lot of repetition, but it's not vain repetition. It's not repetition for the sake of piling on words on top of each other so that you can find some length to your prayer. And he is guarding us against trying to, the kind of prayer that tries to sound spiritual because you think that God might hear you better if he's as impressed with your prayer as you are, that kind of prayer doesn't honor God. He says, there are those who pray like that and they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so he is driving home to us right here that God is 
by, the, by his grace through the blood of Christ, your father. Now, this is only true for those who are in Christ. God is father generally as the creator God, but when Jesus is calling us to pray to God as our heavenly father, he is talking to disciples who have been bought by the blood of Christ and who know God the Father as their father because of his grace and kindness in Jesus. So you can see this five times just in our text, verse 5 through 15. The Lord Jesus refers to God the Father as the father of the disciples. There's 11 times in chapter 6 that he says, your heavenly father. Or 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount total. It is a theme throughout. He's driving home. My father has become your father and you can go to him with intimacy like a child and he knows what you need and his heart is for you. Go to him. All but once that father is mentioned in these chapters, Jesus is applying that personal pronoun to it saying, your father, our father, your father, our father, because he's driving home. It's not just my father. Only one of those times he says, my father, and it's in Matthew 7 when he says that many will come to my father on that day claiming that they knew him and they didn't really, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But every other time he's saying, your father, our father, because he's driving home. This is what he has done for us in the gospel. He came to show us the heart of God and he revealed God to us as father to show us that his heart is full of fatherly affection for us and that he wants to come to us. He wants us to come to him like children to a father for mercy and help in time of need. So later in the Sermon on the Mount, he illustrates this vividly in chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. You can just flip over one page and you'll see it. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That is astounding love and privilege. And David gives me a hard time because, well, look, we're in the thick of it in the kids' season, right? And so he's like, bro, almost all your examples have to do with your kids and hopefully not in ways that scar the kids. But here Jesus is doing it. So I feel like I'm getting away with it, right? He, and he's saying, look, all of you by example, you think of the love that you have for your children. You can't imagine a greater love that you have in your life than you have for your own children. And Jesus says your love by comparison to his is evil. Your love is coming from a sinful heart towards someone who's sinful, and we, are, we give them all the love that we have, but we still don't know how to love like God. That, that's not a far cry for people to imagine, right? That God loves better than you. And he's saying, you are evil by comparison. And even you wouldn't give your child stone 
uh, when they ask for bread. Uh, even though some of your sourdough breads may have tried to mimic stones, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, he says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so this is a call to trust him. I think one of the most moving illustrations of this, and I have it etched inside of my wedding band, Psalm 8411, because in this moving biography of George Mueller, his wife is on her deathbed and she has some kind of mortal disease and it doesn't look like she's recovering and he's gathered there with his children around her deathbed and he in prayer clings to Psalm 8411 which says the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so he goes to God in prayer and he says, God, I'm not upright, but by the blood of your son, you have made me righteous and imputed your righteousness to me. And I'm not walking in any known unrepentant sin. And so I am coming to you and asking you for healing for my wife. But I know this, that he can either raise her to life or give her back to us or that he can bring her to recovery. But he has promised that he will not withhold what is good from us. And so if it is good for her to remain here, she will. And if not, then God in his fatherly wisdom knows best. But no good thing will he withhold from me because I am his child. That is what Jesus is saying here. Trust your heavenly father and go to him. Not in secret, not so that others can think that you're great, not performing, not trying to find all the right words. Sometimes the most powerful prayer is just leaning your heart in just breathless expression toward God, longing. You don't have words, and he hears you. It's the great privilege of your life to live with God as your father. And so I would just say that as an aside. Don't miss this. So, so maybe this will fit better in, our, in this next part. So what do you say when you get there? We, we looked at prayer's premise, right? It's for God. It's with God. It's to God as your father. And he, he wants to get you alone to be with him. But what do you pray when you get there? And that brings us to prayer's content. So Jesus does not give us the Lord's Prayer to contradict what he just now said about not heaping up empty phrases. He's not giving you the Lord's Prayer so that you can recite it without your heart involved and you can just pile on phrases that sound spiritual so that God will hear you along these superstitious words. He's giving us a model, a pattern for prayer. He says, when you pray, pray in this way or along these lines. Here's a model for how to pray. And he taught us to pray like this. Verse 9, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then you're probably familiar, many 
manuscripts include, for yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. We could do a sermon series just in this prayer. Many have. We could do whole sermons dedicated to each line, but we're just going to glean from them briefly this morning. So he first, in teaching us how to pray, calls us to pray, our Father in heaven. I want you to think about how he's, he's already commanded us to pray in secret, but just at the very beginning of this prayer, he's also calling us to pray corporately, communally, that it's not just my Father who art in heaven. It is our Father. And so if this isn't like a further commercial of sorts for the prayer meeting and an exhortation to gather together with the church to pray, this is it that we are called to come together before him and say together, our Father in heaven. But he says, Father, and we just looked at that. That means that you can come with boldness because of Christ. We come to the Father on the basis of who Jesus is as the Son and on the basis of his perfect obedience. So it means that we're not coming self-consciously wondering if we're good enough to approach him in prayer, wondering if we've obeyed well enough to approach him, we're coming like children with childlike faith to a father. And I thought of this um, example from my life that is very annoying to me, but also illustrates wonderfully the, how true this is. Anybody's kids ever interrupt them? My gracious, Right? But they're not sitting there thinking, I wonder if my father will approve me or accept me. It's like, wow, they're super busy or super engaged in a conversation. But you know what? I am a son and I'm coming in hot, right? And I'm just like going and I'm I'm telling them what I want to say and when I want to say it because I'm a son. That's what children do. They're not thinking in that moment, I wonder if this is a good time for him. I wonder if he's busy. I wonder if he'll accept me. It's just like I'm a child and I need something and so I'm coming. And that is the kind of boldness that the Father invites us to come with on the basis of the sufficiency of Christ. On your own merit, we have no business coming to the throne. But in Christ, it is a throne of grace, rich with mercy and help in time of need. And he's ours, he's our Father, but he's also in heaven, which is a reminder that as we come boldly, We come with reverence. We're mindful of who he is and who we are. And we come not just casually in prayer, not just flippantly, but with reverence. This is what Solomon refers to in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So you think, how do do I balance that? How do I come boldly like an interrupting child? And how do I come reverently reminded that he is in heaven? And I would just say, I think this phrase encapsulates it, that we want to pray not self-consciously, but God-consciously, right? We're We're not coming mainly with a view to ourselves, staring at ourselves, staring at our worthiness. We're coming into the presence of a God who is holy, and who invites us to come freely. 
And as we address him as our Father in heaven, he t- he's taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. And if you have said hallowed in your life, it is only because you have quoted this prayer and you probably not even know what it means. But hallowed means come make your name holy here. Right? You, you are holy. May we regard you as holy here in this place right now. I want to see you as you are, and I want your name to be magnified here and now and in all that follows in this prayer. I want this prayer to mainly be for the glory of God and for the magnification of your name. And so would you come and in my heart, you're praying by yourself, if you're praying together with others, it is, God, make your name holy to us. May we regard you with the fear that you are due and come to you like you are really God in heaven. And then he's taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. Prayer uh, most normally is in response to the word of God or is infused with the will of God. And so the word of God. So the word of God teaches us what the will of God is. The kingdom of God spreads as the word of God has its way in the hearts of people and in the lives of people so that we see Christ Jesus actually becoming king in my heart, actually becoming king in your heart, actually becoming king in the world around us. And so we are praying, God, I want to want what you want and we are dependent on you to see it. So in prayer... When it is real, as, when it's as he has taught us, we are asking for the will of God by the power of God in our lives and everywhere. That, that is what we're longing for. So we're subjecting all of our praying for everything that you could bring to him. Before we ever get to our petitions, we're saying, God, I want Jesus to be the king of my heart and my mind and my affections. I want my will to conform to your will. So Jesus modeled for us again, modeled this for us again in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I want your will to be done in my life as it is in heaven. I want your will to be done in Brattleboro as it is in heaven. And God, we cannot see that without you. And so we're coming to you in prayer. nested in the truth of us asking for these things is that God waits for us to ask him. We saw that at the beginning of this message in our intro that we don't have because we don't ask. And so I would ask here in your life, where are you not seeing King Jesus have his way either in your life or in the lives of your neighbors around you? And could it be because we are not asking? It's amazing that he is inviting us to ask for his kingdom to come, knowing that he has the power to bring it. We're not asking him who is powerless, wishing that our neighbors would come to Christ, but he probably won't. Or as we look around at the, at the losses around us, we think it's too big for God. And he's saying, ask me, come to your heavenly father and ask me for my will to be done in and through your life as it is in heaven. And he's, he's waiting to do it. He's inviting us in. But in a huge mystery of God, prayer is God letting us ask him 
for his will, letting us ask him to do what he wants to do in and through our lives. He then says, give us this day our daily bread. This prayer showcases how dependent we are on him for every need. You don't have a more basic need than your daily sustenance, your daily food. And you think about how often in your life you haven't even had to pray to God to provide for this need. You just assume that you provide it for yourself. But just imagine that everything is stripped away and you literally have nothing. There's no money in the account. There's no food. It's, it's morning time and you're faced with a day out in front of you. You've got bills ahead, no food, nothing. And he says, come to your father and you say, Father, would you give to me my bread for today? This is a model for depending on him in everything and coming to him daily in dependence, asking him for his provision, knowing that he knows what you need before you ask him. And if he says no, or if he's saying not yet, you can trust him. But he is the source of our daily bread. He is the source of our life. All right, my timer just went off, so I'm going to put this. Anybody listen to audiobooks? Do you ever go to like two times speed? That's where we're going, all right? I'm going to finish right here. <clears throat> this is saying this prayer is daily. We need to engage in prayer daily. That we need him for our daily bread. We need him for everything daily. And later he's going to say, tomorrow has enough trouble for its own. So don't worry about tomorrow. Pray to me for today. Trust me for today. He then says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. There's two things nested here. Staggering. One, he is mindful of the fact that you are sinful and need forgiveness. And he invites you to come anyways. And so he's saying, I want you, sinful you, to come to me. And I want you to call me Father as you do. And I want you to ask me to forgive you. And I will on the basis of the blood of Christ. He is the only means of forgiveness, but he invites you to come all sinful, broken, messed up you. He wants you to come and call him Father and come to him for forgiveness. He's the only source of forgiveness. And that forgiveness can only be found by coming to him and praying. You have desperate need of forgiveness. Even blood-bought, cleansed you by the blood of Christ, we sin every day and every day. We need to pray to God and go to him and confess our sins to him. And if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this assumes also, not just that you're sinful, but that you've already forgiven people around you for their sins against you. It is assumed that just as Christ, God has forgiven you in Christ, you have turned that forgiveness outward and that the mercy of God has made you merciful. If you have not forgiven other people, Jesus says in another place that you need to get up from your prayer, get up from your altar, stop praying, go and make it right, go make reconciliation, and then come back and pray. This is the only part of the prayer that Jesus gives commentary to afterwards. Doesn't give commentary to hallowed be thy name. Doesn't give commentary to your kingdom come, your will be done. All of that's pretty clear. But what he knows you have the biggest hang up on in this prayer is forgiveness. And so he adds, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. His call on you is to allow his mercy to make you merciful. And so you need to be reminded, forgiveness is not approval. God did not approve of our sins at the cross of Christ. He condemned them in the flesh of Christ and canceled our debt. And now he calls for you to do the same before you pray. There's an awesome quote from C.S. Lewis about forgiveness. Go Google it. It's great. I'm not going to read it to you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How much temptation do you encounter? How much sin do you engage in because you're not praying, God, deliver me from these things? At the start of the day, God, I'm, I'm run into temptation today. Please deliver me. Save me. Not just from the penalty of sin. I'm asking you to save me from the power of my sin. Please deliver me from temptation. Please make me like Christ. And apart from him and his mercy, it won't happen. And so pray and ask him to deliver you from the enemy's plans, the enemy's schemes, the enemy's tactics. Pray this over your children. I would say this, parents, if you're not praying for your children, who is? Answer, maybe your pastors, but you need to be praying for your children too. All right, last thing. So we saw prayers, premise, promise. I mean, prayers, premise, prayer, and then promise. You can see this in verse six. Don't have a long time to spend on it, but he explicitly says, your heavenly father who sees you praying in secret will reward you. And we may not know a ton about the nature of rewards, but we know the heart of the rewarder. We know the heart of the giver of the gifts. And if he says, watch out, pay attention. That's what this word for beware means. Pay attention. Don't steer off course. Watch your motives. Don't lose the reward. And this is Jesus talking to you. Then the reward of glory or responsibility or honor when you see him face to face, the reward of more joy, more of the presence of God when you see him face to face is worth not losing. It's what Jesus gave to us as an incentive to pray with proper motives. He says, don't forget about the reward. Don't lose it. So when you pray, you get God along with the will of God and the promise of reward for following him in this act of righteousness. So the question for us is, will we draw near to him in prayer this year? Will you draw near to him in prayer individually as your heavenly father? Will we draw near together and cry out together, our father? And I just want you to imagine as we close, imagine your own children not coming to you for time with you or for help because they didn't feel like they had the right words or they, didn't, they thought that they didn't need you. That, that is essentially what our prayerlessness is. God, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. Or, oh, man, I don't feel like I can go to him because I don't feel like I have all the right words. Or worse, in light of today's text, imagine your children talking to you only for the approval of their friends. God wants our hearts, church. And it is true. If you feel like you don't know how to pray as you ought, the reason why is because you don't. 
The Bible says that explicitly in Romans 8. None of us do. But he also says that he's given us a spirit who supplements our own prayers with his praying and he adds to them and makes them acceptable to the, to the Father. And Christ even now is praying for you. And so as we long to be made like him, and that's the cry of our hearts is to be more Christ-like this year, we, we need to aim to be more like him in this. That as he is interceding for us, we allow him to make us like him in becoming intercessors for other people. And we make our, our chief aim of every day to be to get alone with God in secret, with our Bibles open, with hearts of prayer, saying, Father in heaven, I know that you know what I need before I ask you. So I'm coming to be with you. I'm coming for your eyes only, and I'm coming knowing that you are my Father, and I want to come again and again asking for you to be regarded as holy in my life, for your will to be done in my life and around me as it is in heaven. Please use me to magnify Christ through me, around me, in me. Let's pray to that end. Father, what a staggering privilege bought for us by the blood of Christ that even though from all of eternity the only one who could truly call you Father was the one who has been God the Son from all of eternity. He came so that his Father might be our Father. Lord, we praise you for the depths of your love. That to as many as receive Christ, you give the right and the privilege to become children of God. We know that it doesn't yet appear yet how it will when we see you face to face, but you say right now that we are children of and that you love us, that you've invited us to come to you in secret to pray for your eyes only and that we can see our lives and our world transformed as we pray for your glory and for your kingdom. God, I pray that you would convict us over our prayerlessness I pray that you would teach us to pray. I pray that any who walked in with um, kind of an insecurity around prayer or a discouragement around prayer, like you're not listening, like you're not hearing them, I pray that you would um, showcase your heart to them afresh, that you love them and that they are children and that you long for them to come to them and pray. I thank you that we don't have to have all the right words and heap up empty phrases on empty phrases that we can just utter our groanings to you. They don't even have to be comprehensible all the time, just leaning our heart to you in faith, longing for you, and you accept us, not because of our righteousness, but because of the sufficiency of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for this privilege that you have made for us to come to the Father again and again and again. I pray that we would as a church this year. In Jesus' name, amen.